My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Up here to make friends, just try and make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Nobody liked PepsiCo going into today's earnings report. Stock's falling 20 points from its high. Based on worries about competition, high commodity costs, you know, the usual litany. Then this morning, PepsiCo, yes, later Frito-Lay, Gatorade, Pepsi, reports an excellent upside surprise. Without any gross margin, margin degradation to speak of. And what happens? Well, the stock roars higher, up 4% on an otherwise pretty much sedate day uh, where the Dow dipped 28 points, the S&P lost 0.33%, and the Nasdaq declined 0.09%. It turns out PepsiCo's raw cost liabilities are only a few months from turning positive. Headwinds going to tailwinds. Remember, Pep has longer-term contracts for commodities that are just now rolling over, something that will give them a huge earnings boost. And you know what? This got me thinking, maybe the bear market is kind of maybe growing too long in the tooth for some companies. Isn't that what happened with PepsiCo? We've had tremendous interest in the food and drug stocks of late, which are pure recession plays. We've seen upgrades in all the usual staple suspects now. Merck, Kimberly-Clark, Amerisource Bergen, McKesson, Cardinal Health, Humana, UNH. They're always on the move these days. Time-honored recession stocks make sense. Merck Inc., the new deal with Moderna to develop specialized cancer vaccines. I frankly would rather buy Moderna off that. Atlantic upgraded Kimberly Clark, basically saying, it's enough, enough, enough. I mean, how low can it go? Amerisource Bergen, McKesson, Cardinal, they're all drug middlemen. Consistent earners, not unlike Ralphie from The Sopranos. As for Humana and UNH Health, you can't live without them. Well, more specifically, you, you can't afford to get sick without them. Just wait till you're my age. Believe me, I tried to figure out how to deal with Medicare and ended up paying a fortune so someone else could figure it out for me. All I know is I pay you mana for all the stuff I used to get for free before I turned 65. Then again, turning 65 is better than the alternative. But back to PepsiCo. In this business, our goal is to find stocks where expectations are low and Wall Street's written off the business as an inflation roadkill, just like Pep, until this morning. So after I read the quarter in the conference call, I had a brainstorm. Why don't I sit through the S&P 500 new low list? That's right, the new low list. The neighborhoods where all the dreams are broken. And take a good look for the next PepsiCo. Now, there's certainly a lot to choose from. The S&P is down almost 25% for the year. We've gone 11 months since the bear market began. Average bear market only lasts for about 13 months. So maybe we have an expiration date coming up. And soon, some of these are going to pop. Hey, maybe that sounds crazy. But did you expect PepsiCo to explode like a shaken up can of Mountain Dew today? Probably not. I took a look at yesterday's S&P intraday new low list. There were 59 names, gigantic number of fallen angels, because this is one of the most horrible moments I can recall since I got in this stock business in 1979. There's lots of miserable companies on the list. I mean, do you want to pick up some ATT? Maybe this is the quarter they write the ship. Don't hold your breath, though. I think it might be too early to buy Intel. They're about to lay off thousands of people. Usually the next quarter won't be that good either. If the U.S. is blocking our semiconductor equipment companies from selling to China, I'm going to take a hard pass from KLA. Teradyne, too, especially after Brethren Applied Materials just blew up this very evening. Charter Communications, the cable company. Do this thing has $88 billion in debt? It, it, that's like the debt of a fairly large country with rapidly diminishing tax revenue. Call it Fredonia. But then we have a host of companies on the new low list that seem down on their luck. 
but may not stay that way. With rates this high, do you really want to throw out KeyCorp? Yes, KeyBank with its 5% yield. Are you supposed to give up on both Bank of America and J.P. Morgan with their massive deposit bases at a time when their loan losses are tiny and their credit balances are gigantic? Remember, most people are getting next to nothing on their savings, but the banks can invest their money in treasuries at 4% legally without getting in trouble with the regulators. Hey, by the way, the banks did exactly that in 1990, and it made a killing for them. I think it happened again. If you're a new CEO and you don't know what tech you need, you know what you do? You call a company called Accenture. This company's the gold standard for consulting. Yet, there it is, a puny little discard, as they have nothing going for them at all. I find it astonishing to throw on the new low list. I know ServiceNow didn't exactly blow away its last quarter. It just had its usual excellent one. It must kill Bill McDermott that his stock's on the 52-week low list. Go read his book, Winner's Dream, A Journey from Corner Store to Corner Office, and then ask yourself if he'll let this stock continue to roll over and play dead. I don't think so. I don't know which will turn first, Domino's Pizza or Yum Brands, but both are well-run companies that are coping with food inflation and wage pressure. Let me ask you, if the Fed actually does tame inflation, and it sure hasn't yet, will these stocks stay down here? Isn't that how you have to think? We can't predict when the Fed will win, but we know they will beat inflation eventually. Is there downside in Domino's and Yum? Of course. But they've already made it to the new low list, for heaven's sake. It's not like you're catching them on the run. Let's not look generac backs up your house so uh, and you can throw electricity in it. They back up the electricity because the grid is so awful, right? It's a necessity with an electric grid that doesn't work well and the rise of electronic vehicles. How can you avoid taking at least a look at a generac at home if not the generac the stock? Oh, this one's so low, I'm tempted to add it to the charitable trust. We convene for the investing club tomorrow at noon for a good talk. Members only, though. Next, I know this one's too early, but Stanley Black & Decker is a fantastic brand name. Honestly, it's one of the best companies I can imagine. Yet its stock now trades like it's finished and it's never coming back. That's crazy. This is everybody's go-to toolmaker. If you ask people what's the best in tools, they're going to say Stanley Black & Decker. So should it really be thrown away like this? Yes, S&P Global's lever to security issuance, and that's arguably the worst business in the world right now than semiconductors. There's no Pepsco here. But ask yourself, will there always be no IPOs? Is that the new normal, or is it aberrant? Anyone who says it's the new normal will be laughed off the trading floor, which is where we are, believe it or not. Uh, but uh, aberrant? If you think so, then why not buy it? Next, the feds won't allow the phone companies to merge. They hate mergers, especially in industries with few competitors. Yet all the cell tower companies are on sale, including American Tower, Crown Castle, SBA Communications. These are terrific, consistent companies with very good long-term growth. Finally, there's a really odd one, Mid-America Apartment Communities. This is a real estate investment trust that owns and operates multifamily apartment properties in the southeast, the southwest, and the mid-Atlantic. We know that's precisely where housing is in short supply. So why the heck would you sell the stock of a company that owns some of the hottest properties in the country? I think that's just plain stupid. It's not like you're buying an office building right in Center City. Listen, I know I'm taking a shotgun approach here, not a more precise rifle. But the bottom line, I'm just trying to give you a more constructive perspective based on the prism of PepsiCo, a pathetic ulceran that suddenly turned into a big winner. And I think PepsiCo, by the way, is just getting started. Let's go to Maria in Pennsylvania, please. Maria. Hi, Mr. Kramer. Thank you for all you do. My oh, husband thank you, Maria. And I, What's going on? 
My husband and I, we, we watched you most every night, and we both had our own businesses, so we were investing on our own. So we really oh, appreciate great. your okay. direction and your instruction and all that you do. Unfortunately, uh, my husband had an accident and passed away a year ago, so I'm oh, on geez. my own. <laughs> and he, um, I inherited um, a lot of KMI, Kinder Morgan, from him. And uh, my question uh, leads to that is, it should be a good investment because we need pipelines and natural gas, but uh, we're underwater with it, and it just seems to go between 16 and 19. It has a good uh, dividend, but um, should I uh, average it down or, or cut my losses? Right. So what, what's your suggestion? All right, well, first, let's get everything in perspective. I'm really sorry for your loss. It's kind of stunning, and I was, uh, wow, I'm kind of just thinking about that. Because uh, you, you're such a nice person to say those nice things about me. It's very hard to do the show right now. So your trust in me means a great deal. And if you were here with me on the staff, you would know that I mean that. Uh, on the issue of the inheritance, it, uh, Kinder Morgan's a very good company. It yields 6.5%. I think the pipelines are very good to own here. But I average down. I don't want you to put more money in a pipeline stock. But I do, again, extend my condolences. And it means a great deal to me that you turn to me every night. And I hope I don't let you down. Right, the point is, I'm trying to give a, a constructive perspective to the prism of PepsiCo, not like, like we just did on Kinder Morgan. Uh, and I just don't think that PepsiCo's an also ran. I think that these stocks aren't either. On Mad Money tonight, we're continuing our third quarter recap series and digging into the winners and multiple losers in the NASDAQ. Then could Bolero be strike for your portfolio? I'm taking a closer look at the bowling chain slash SPAC, a positive SPAC. After the stock's recent comeback. And Macy's is reviving Toys R Us and stores across the United States. And boy, is it terrific. We had a chance to talk to the, the company's CEO from the flagship store in New York City to learn more about the partnership. So I'm urging you to stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. talking about the great bear market of 2022, which truly came to a nasty whitehead in the third quarter. You can see it most clearly in the eviscerated NASDAQ 100 with its pitiful performance. This is the segment of the market that's been decimated by the Fed's crusade against inflation, and your portfolio for that matter. Some of that's because so much of the NASDAQ 100 just got too high at the peak last November. I can't stress enough that the run-up into the peak is one of the principal reasons for our current bear market, because it allowed so many garbage companies to come public Flooding Wall Street with lots of flotsam and its cousin Jetsam. These companies were too young, too unprofitable, too awful. You should never have had to lay eyes on them. Maybe that's why when we look at the top performers in the NASDAQ 100, the 100 largest non-financial companies in the NASDAQ composite, we find nothing but oddities for the third quarter. We start with Constellation Energy, the nuclear-oriented utility I mentioned last night. That rallied 45% because it's almost entirely fossil fuel-free. Next is Netflix with its tremendous third quarter bounce back. Again, 
overlapping the S&P winners I told you about yesterday. I think they need to successfully launch their new ad-supported tier to justify that 34% gain, and I bet they do just that because these are real smart guys. And then there's Biogen, up 30%, all thanks to some positive data from their Alzheimer's drug. It's not until we get to the fourth best performer that we find a stock that's not in the S&P 500. Again, though, it's an odd one. I'm talking about Mercado Libre. That's the Latin American eBay, an online category killer that has nothing to do with the Fed whatsoever. No wonder Mercado Libre has rallied 30% in the third quarter. I followed this company for a long time. In fact, I was an original investor back in my old hedge fund days. And I think it's a default winner. That said, I can't recommend it because Latin America's got too many political risks right now. Not worth the potential headache. Fifth is PayPal, another bounce back play, up 23%. After it got radically oversold. PayPal sank like a stone earlier this year because it was perceived as a pandemic play, but also because it failed to hit some well-defined targets, including some made on our show. This one hurt our charitable trust badly. We'd, start, we'd stuck with it for, for years. We had done very well, but we got too complacent, too trusting. Our mistake. While I still believe in CEO Dan Schulman, I think the main reason PayPal rallied last quarter is that Elliott Management, the big activist firm that I like so much, took a $2 billion stake in the business. I'm among Elliott's most outspoken supporters because they do incredibly rigorous work. So whenever they first get on board, it could be a real positive catalyst to take them seriously. But management shouldn't try to fight them. However, given that financial technology remains a very dicey group here, I don't think PayPal's worth the risk. Elliott's great, but they might have a longer time horizon than you do. And if it gets to the 70s, buy it. Six is a company that's not even executing at a high level, raw stores. But it's up 20% because this is an off-price chain that buys up excess inventory from normal retailers. And right now, those chains are desperate to unload their old merchandise. I tried to get in one of their stores in San Francisco recently, but there was a line to get in. Too much business? Too crowded? No. The security guard simply told me they had to limit the number of shoppers to prevent theft. Not a great sign for retail. But Ross is a cheap place to buy clothes going to recession. That said, I prefer TJX, which if you want to learn more about, please attend tomorrow's Investing Club noon meeting. Seven's an old standby. It's Tesla up 18% for the third quarter. This one's easy. Tesla's making its numbers. I'm almost surprised the stock wasn't up even more because it's out executing every other automaker. But it's a bear market, so you can't count on anything, especially when you remember the auto industry tends to do poorly when the Fed's raising rates. I think Tesla can transcend the torture, although I understand the skepticism. Following there's Airbnb, oh, one of my faves, 18% gain. For Airbnb, this was a breakout quarter with a ton of free cash flow. This company's finally coming to its own as a technological marvel that I think represents the best value of all the NASDAQ winners. Their business model has a huge, it's got gigantic leverage, and it's a major beneficiary from the endless escalation in hotel bills. The new app's a winner, as is Brian Chesky, the CEO. The stock had a huge move today, and I still like it up here. How about the losers? All right, for the NASDAQ, they're a lot more enlightening than the winners. Let's start with the best of the worst, which is Adobe. Oh, that's a fantastic software company, but the stock has nevertheless dropped 24% because its growth is slowing, and that's just true. I regard Adobe as the best friend of creatives, not to mention the backbone of graphics and analytics on the Internet. Yet it couldn't transcend the growl of the bears, who have no tolerance whatsoever for software companies with slowing growth rates, especially the smaller ones. Next, Comcast fell 25%. I can't really comment because they're the parent company of this network, but talking about cable more generally, this group is absolutely hated right now. The market wants no part of it. Only the semiconductors trade worse. What a change from the old days. Third worst performer? Well, you know what? A semi. Intel, off 31% for the third quarter, as the whole semiconductor cohort gave up the ghost. Intel's struggling because personal computers have slowed dramatically off a cliff 
After so many people bought new ones during the worst days of the pandemic, you don't buy one new one every year. We saw AMD pre-announce the downside, and boy, was it ugly. Given that AMD looks like it took share from Intel, the results here may be even worse. On the plus side, Intel hasn't pre-announced yet, although the stories stick with layoff rumors, so it might not be horrendous after the quarter. But its end markets are still sinking, and that's what really matters. We know Intel's going to spin off Mobileye, their autonomous driving business. It's actually pretty exciting. It's got a 5.76% yield. Whoa, but wait, I'm worried the dividend needs up too much of its cash flow. I've expressed concern that Intel can't keep paying such a large dividend if they're going to spend aggressively to compete with AMD. But management assures me that won't be a problem. I'm not convinced. But a lot of people are. Oh, by the way, Applied Materials, the semiconductor equipment maker, pre-announced bad earnings tonight. Must be in the semi-water. Finally, we have a bunch of names that were all down 31%. Match, the online dating site, that had a pretty shaky shortfall. Those guys suffer from an inability to forecast, a problem that seems to afflict that whole dating industry. Then there's Zoom Video, the ultimate stay-at-home play. These guys do have $5 billion in cash. They could easily make a transformative acquisition. But until they do, well, they don't have any earnings momentum. And it's impossible to justify the company's $22 billion market cap. You don't pay $22 billion for one-trick pony. Charter Communications is in there, down 35%. Another hated cable stock that we went over last night. Last and also, uh, it's not fair to call it least, is Okta, down 37%. Before the peak last November, Okta was on fire. As Wall Street loved these cybersecurity software plays with fast growth and no earnings. Since then, though, they've gone out of style. I like Okta the business. They've got a tremendous niche in identity and verification management. But the current environment is brutal for Okta the stock, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. they got to make real money to change that. Here's the bottom line. The Nasdaq 100 is filled with woe and hurt. These seven biggest losers from the third quarter are simply representative of the house of pain the index has become. By the way, if you're living in a house of pain, you should move somewhere else. There are a lot better zip codes out there. They have money's back after the break. Coming up... This stock might be right up your alley. Kingpin Kramer's going to bowl you over next. Every now and then we stumble upon a little-known stock that's performing insanely well. And all we can do is ask, why? Even in a hideous market like this one, you still get those great undiscovered stories from time to time, although it happens a lot less often. But it does happen. This time I'm talking about Bolero, not the musical piece, the bowling chain with more than 300 locations across North America. Now, you might recognize them as Kramer Fave Bowlmore Lanes or AMF. Here's a stock that's delivered a huge, huge score. It's up almost 44% year to date. This is a very unlikely winner. See, Bolero is the product of a SPAC merger of all things. Regular viewers know that I normally hate anything connected to the SPAC wave. And the last few years have been just horrific. Just horrific. Mainly because most of them have been amazingly horrible money losers. Last week, we highlighted some data from D.A. Davidson where they found that less than 10% of these post-merger SPAC stocks were trading above the level where the SPAC came public. On average, they're down 51%. Bolero's managed to buck that trend, though. Like every SPAC, it started trading at 10 bucks. Now it's at 12.98, giving you a nearly 30% gain. Somehow, in an awful market where SPACs are utterly despised, this thing's been able to march steadily higher. So what the heck does Bolero have going for it to fuel this kind of move? And I'm going to give you a little uh, heads up. You can look at this. See? 
I wore this especially for the show. It, it, by the way, it's, it's a Ferragamo, just in case you're thinking that it might be from Mo Ginsburg. For starters, you need to know that even though it's a SPAC play, it's a throwback to the old days, back when these special purpose acquisition vehicles had a very different function. In the last few years, most back deals are simply schemes that allow startups to come public without having to comply with the SEC's regulations for initial public offerings. It's a way to go around the government. That's how we ended up with hundreds of SPACs making venture capital-style bets on business plans, not real businesses. Now the market's turned against those stories, which is why most of the recent SPAC plays have been utterly obliterated. But if you go back a few years further, SPACs were very different. Although they were still blank check companies, so to speak, their purpose was to make lots of little acquisitions and roll up a particular industry. Some of them worked out very well for shareholders over the long haul. Bolero's got going with that older model. This is a nice and simple bowling chain that's on a mission to consolidate the enormous yet highly fragmented bowling uh, market. I mean, did you know that bowling's actually the number one participatory sport in America? Number one. Roughly 70 million people go bowling every year. But there are very few large chains. We've got 3,500 different independent bowling alley operators in the United States, representing an incredible consolidation opportunity for Bolero, especially since the locations tend to make a lot more money than the industry average. I love that simplicity. They're using the SPAC for its intended purpose, raising capital that they they spend on lots of little acquisitions to take over a niche industry. Initially, there wasn't a ton of excitement for this one, though. In July 1st of last year, we learned that a SPAC called ISOS Acquisition Corp., would be merging with Bolero in a deal that valued the company at $2.6 billion. That transaction closed in mid-December after the SPAC boom had already started going bust. So Bolero stock got crushed, but falling below $7 by early February. In retrospect, that was a tremendous electric buying opportunity. As Bolero's stock roared back to 13 bucks as of today, steadily making a series of higher highs and higher lows over the past eight months, we love that chart. What explains the strength? It's very straightforward. Bolero keeps posting fantastic earnings numbers. On February 9th, they delivered a nice top and bottom line beat with revenue up 11% from pre-pandemic levels and much better than expected profitability. In May, Bolero reported another strong set of numbers, and this is their most important quarter of the year. Not only did the company have phenomenal revenue growth up 130% year over year uh, and 26% from pre-pandemic levels, which is really terrific, their same store sales were up 12% versus the same period before COVID. At the same time, they also gave you record earnings for interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, up 61% versus the same period in 2019. And much, that's really much higher than expected. I couldn't believe how great the quarter was. Best of all, four weeks ago, Bolero reported another stunning top and bottom line beat. They generated $267 million in revenue. Wall Street was only looking for $195 million. Same store sales were up 53% versus pre-pandemic levels. EBITDA came in at $82 million. The street was only looking for $58 million. Up 95% year-over-year and 141% versus 2019. Show me another company that's doing that well. They are gigantic numbers. Bolero can put up this kind of growth in part because people keep coming back to the bowling alley but also because they're making a bunch of little acquisitions to grow their footprint. In the 12 months ending this June, they bought 29 additional bowling centers. It's a good time to expand if you're in the bowling business. As president and CFO Brett Parker explained, quote, we continue to see very strong demand in our bowling centers. Additionally, the new units are accelerating our growth rates as we open four new locations during the quarter, end quote. At the same time, their margins are exploding higher because a bowling alley has tremendous operating leverage as more people go back to the lanes. 
In short, Bolero is a quality SPAC play that has almost nothing in common with the SPAC brethren. This was already a good existing business before it came public. And they've been putting the money they raised from the SPAC merger to work on buying up these bowling centers. Since the last quarter, they bought another one and signed definitive purchase agreements for eight more. That's giving their numbers a big boost. It's exactly what a SPAC was meant for. Plus, unlike most SPAC plays that consistently over-promised and under-delivered, Bolero is on pace to beat its own forecast. There's one more big difference. With most SPAC plays, it's tough to get a handle on how many shares are actually out there. New stock seems to come out of nowhere, diluting anyone who is foolish enough to be a buyer. But Bolero's going the opposite way. Back on February 7th, when the stock was down in the dumps, they announced a 200 million share and warned buyback. Not a selling expedition, but a buyback. In the spring, they redeemed all outstanding warrants, getting the dilution under control. It's like a real company. Thanks to the buyback, uh, they've already retired 80% of the new shares created during the redemption process, and they've still got $160 million left in firepower for more authorization. Now, get this. In short, Bolero is the least SPAC-like of all the SPAC plays I've seen in recent years, and I've looked at every one of them. That's why it's starting to gain sponsorship. There are now five sell-side analysts covering this thing, all with buy ratings and an average price target of 17 bucks. I think it's still early enough in the stock's life cycle to be worth buying here. We could have been earlier, but I'm confident we're not late. Bottom line, when it comes to Bolero, I actually believe the hype. This thing is a strike, not another SPAC gutter ball. You've got my blessing to buy it right here, especially since the stock's pulled back a couple of bucks from where it was trading after last month's amazing earnings report. Oh, by the way, when I bowled there last, I got a 117. But back when I had hair, I once bowled a 143. Chad in New York. Chad. Hello, Jim. So happy to have you. Booyah. Uh, uh, booyah. Just, back to you, Chad. Thank you very I'm much. I'm sorry? Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I was just curious about Spotify. It was acquired by Google. And uh, is it better than Amazon? Well, um, Spotify is not going to be acquired. I mean, they've got independent management. I think Spotify at $80 is frankly just too low. I mean, but you know what we've got? We've got a bear market here. And stocks like Spotify, which are, are companies that are not making money, I cannot recommend. I'm going to say that over and over again. I'm not recommending any companies on this show that are money losers if I can avoid doing so. When it comes to Bolero, this thing's not a gutter ball, okay? It's just not. You've got my blessing to buy it here on its recent pullback. You can even bring my ball. There's much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with Macy's. With the holiday season quickly approaching, I sat down with Macy's CEO Jeff Gannett from the company's New York City store to see how the Toys R Us partnership is influencing their seasonal strategy. Then, Wall Street is always fearful, particularly right now, of another Lehman moment. But is it warranted? I'll give you my take. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. What do you do with a great retail turnaround story in a market that absolutely loathes retail? Let's call this the Macy's question. Here's a department store chain that's pulled off a magnificent turnaround coming out of the worst days of the pandemic. And their most recent quarters were surprisingly strong. But nobody seems to care because the rest of retail is so troubled. Earlier today, I had a terrific chance to catch up with Jeff Gannett. He's the chairman and CEO of Macy's at his world-famous flagship store in Herald Square, where they're opening a new toy section in partnership with the old Toys R Us. 
Take a look. Jeff, I'm here on an amazing floor, and I feel the wonderment of a department store. I appreciate that, Jim. How's it happen? How did it feel so magical? It reminds me when I was a little boy and I'd go to FAO Shorts, or you go to London in these department right. stores, Harrods, and they have a floor that you just want to play in. Yes. It's working. So that's what you, you just hit it on the head. I mean, I think everybody wants an experiential toy store. Right. Certainly kids do. And so we saw that that was a real opportunity here in America. And when you had the power of Toys R Us and you got the magic of Macy's bringing these two brands together, we see it as a billion dollar opportunity and a lot of happy kids. Now, a billion dollars is a lot of money. It and is. I'm looking at Toys R Us and have mixed emotions. Of course, when I was uh, had young kids, they, it, it did well. And then it, it, it faltered. How are you able to bring it back? So I think really what it is is the idea that we have so many other opportunities within the store and the website. Right. So you've got all that traffic of people that are shopping in other categories. So you can bring them into toys and then they can shop other categories. It's a way of making it profitable and a way of making sure that we're, we're getting right, a really good customer flow for it. It seems to be now that when you talk about toys, it's not just the usual Barbie, which is doing incredibly well, but right. you're even talking about STEM toys. Yes. Educational. Yes. Give me a couple of the standards. So I think one of the things you have is you kind of look around here is you've got all the right brands, you've got all this curated assortment, but then you also have like exclusive content. You've got the Jeffrey Corner over there. You've got Gary Vee, who's like one of the hottest properties out there with yes. NFTs, yep. and we've got exclusive content with him. We've got Imaginarian that's exclusive for us. So it's like plush and apparel and all the standbys that you have with Mattel and Hasbro and Playmobil. We have the only Nickelodeon shop where it's all pulled together as a brand. And then you just got all these play areas, and you've got opportunities like what you see over there. Can I be in that? In a you can be in that, and I'll be on the hood, and you'll be in there. But the intent is, is just kids want to come and play. And what we see, because we've been rolling these out across America, the amount of time that kids are spending in and pulling their parents over, it's like, it's like what we wanted it to be. It's a great experience. How about people from other countries? Yeah. I know this store is important for that, but the dollar is strong. I recognize that. But are people here from other countries recognizing the equal? the wonderment that I feel? This one has not opened yet. Oh, so, so we've you're the first. Go okay. You're the first. It I'm opens on Saturday. Right, right. But there's other flagships that we have. Like I was just in uh, Union Square in San Francisco two weeks ago. And you definitely have customers, all different languages, experiencing right. it. And because Toys R Us is in like 40 different countries, they know the brand. Right. And you mentioned Union Square is just out there uh, three weeks ago. Yeah. It is a huge piece of property. Is that the best use of the property? Because, boy, that's a great area. So you think about, we used to be three buildings in right, Union Square. Right, We're right. down to one. So I think the big thing for us is how do we improve the business in Union Square? So, you know, I'm in constant communication with the mayor, um, London Breed, and really what we need to do, and I would, I, I would give her high marks. I was going to say fabulous. Fabulous. Two really weeks ago, it. from where I was a year ago, mm -hmm. when you look at crime and safety, it's improving. They now, really we're not are. where we need to be in terms of where we were in 2019, but definitely improvement. I give her a lot of credit. Okay, so let's talk about the business in general. Uh, last time your excellent CFO spoke, uh, talked about how uh, Dressy's working. Um, it's certainly uh, shoes, fragrances. Are these still holding up? Still holding up. So what you found, you know, post-pandemic, when you had customers that were going from kind of nesting, mm -hmm. from kind of the comfortable categories into the dress-up and the special occasion categories, those happen to be Macy's strengths. So when you look at anything special occasion, a suit, a dress, you know, when people want to give and look special, they think of Macy's. But then gifting. You know, I'm really excited about this holiday season. Because, first off, our inventories are in great shape. So we're right. able to flow newness. 
And when you look at the amount of newness we have, we're quite excited about. And we've been doing the practice runs for Valentine's Day and Mother's Day and, and Father's Day. So we know what categories are going to be important this holiday season, and we're ready. A lot of people were caught with the wrong inventory. They were caught with casual. You uh, uniquely knew. It was down 18%. And you didn't get caught. How come? So what we did is, you know, we have made a real focus on enterprise capabilities, which includes, you know, data and enterprise analytics. And so there were real customer signals about slowdowns in the casual categories. And so we put the brakes very quickly with our private brands and working with our market brands. And then you had all these signals of, you know, unmet demand that was going on in the dress-up categories. And so we worked with our partners and we just massively started to accelerate receipts on that. So what you have was that we're still out of balance and into to some of our inventory, but we're dealing with it very aggressively. And we have the liquidity to basically flow the goods that customers are, are transacting on right now. I thought it was interesting you had the diversification of ports that nobody had to. Yes. So is that you going over uh, to the east, someone on your team recognizing, look, we got to be everywhere. We can't just make it so we're clogged like everybody else? Well, when you see 120 boats that are in the port of Los Angeles and you look at all these underutilized ports in the balance of the nation, you know, we've done a lot to kind of modernize our supply chain. So making sure that the boats were coming into the right portals, that we had enough freight that went, you know, to the, the right centers or the right stores uh, was, was something that we focused on. All right, let's talk about valuation for a second. When we first met, my advice to you was balance sheet uh, and, and not buy back stock because that had been the history. And boy, well, I got to tell you, the balance sheet's fabulous. And it's a long time before there's any, any uh, bonds that are due. So what do you do? Let's say you had a just blowout, billion-dollar opportunity to capitalize yeah. on it. Dividend? I, I, you know, I'm not as crazy about buyback. To finish up, uh, buy some more of that $6 billion that, that's, that's out years from now. So, it's a 6% coupon. I don't know what to do. So we'll look at all of that. But what okay. I would tell you is right now we're really looking at liquidity and flexibility. That's right. the name of the game. There's a lot of uncertainty coming our way. So when you look at our capital allocation strategy, number one, it's a clean balance sheet. Number two is making sure we're investing in the business. And then with whatever cash remains, looking at the dividend and then obviously the stock buybacks. Well, okay. But at one point when we were talking about it, I was talking with a very wealthy investor who said, you know, Macy's.com is worth a fortune. Yeah. I, now, I prefer not to spin off because it's, to me, financial engineering. But is it still worth a fortune? You know, what I'd say is that they're inextricably linked. I mean, this is about Good. omni-channel. When you look at the amount of behavior, that's it's porous. It goes in between channels. Customers like C today, what they would look at on the Funko right behind you, they might transact on their app later or on, the, on their, their desktop later. So this idea about tracking every one of those transactions as two separate companies was a huge burden. And at the end of the day, we follow the customer. Being an omni-channel brand means you are connected. All right. Customer right now, we had LVMH report yesterday. They like fashion, leather, perfumes, cosmetics, jewelry. How are you doing on those? We're good on all those. So, really? you know, obviously we have the Bloomingdale's brand, which you know and love. Right. Having a banner year. Okay. Blue Mercury in, in, in what we're kind of up, upscale beauty. Right. Really good there. And then in all the Macy's categories, in those categories, quite strong. Now, I, it's funny you asked because I was going to say, what is it in Blue Mercury that's doing? Is it Nest that's doing well or is it uh, Kiehl's? What's selling well? Because the price point there is very high and it it's is. always crowded. Yeah, it's, it's just a curated assortment. If you walk in, I was in a Blue, in a Blue Mercury uh, two weeks ago and we, were, we went to two of them, Tony and I. And what we saw basically is you've got M61 and you've got Lunar Naster, which it's private brands. And then you've got this great curated in both skincare, fragrance, as well as color. So I think it's the best curated upper end assortment in beauty today. And we've got it online and we've got it in hundreds of stores across the nation. Okay, so 100 stores across the nation. Uh, that means you've got South, means you have West. Again, speaking of tourism, 
it, those are interesting places. I remember Florida was great for you in tourism at one point. Still. Yes. So I would tell you, in tourism right now, we're expecting 21 levels. It, it's going to be a huge tailwind for us in the future. We still haven't seen the Far East customer come back you know, wow. and, and travel with us. Starting to see the Europeans, definitely South and Central America is coming back, but it's not at levels exp- that uh, it's exceeded our expectations. It's about where we were in 21. Right. That will be a tailwind. Okay. Now, when I look through the stores, I think, as you know, and I think at Bloomingdale's, personal shopper, yes. curation, and gifts. How does it look for those? Because you know, I was critical at one point. I said, come on, I'm one of your largest customers. You don't have the right people catering to us. You've changed. We've got the same people. Is it like that? It is. So when I think when you think about gifts and, and the connection with great sellers right. as well as great navigation tools online, I think we're, 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 we're definitely going into that. And uh, we've made huge differences from where we were last year. So when you think about, you know about newness. And fashion newness is the lifeblood of a fashion retailer. And so when I look at the gifts that we have this year, about half of our assortment is going to be brand new content that we learned through the last year. And we're able to flow all of it. So if you walk Bloomingdale's today and you look at their 150th and all the exclusive content, and then you walk Macy's when we're fully set in the first week of November, you're going to see the difference. All right, full circle. Uh, We've had Mattel on almost every quarter. They are hot, hot, hot. Do you have the whole... uh, uh, Full panoply of, of Mattel here? We're going to show it to you. So Richard Dixon and I are buddies, and what he has been able to do with that brand in terms of content um, is very exciting, and you're going to see it here. Well, I want to see it. Jeff Gannett, Chairman and CEO of Macy's. Always a pleasure, sir. Good Thank to see you, you, sir. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast-fire lightning round. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski daddy, time for the lightning round. I'm going to start with Andy in Pennsylvania. Andy. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Jim, first I'd like to start off with the big Springfield Spartan. Booyah. Springfield to the championship. I'm with you, partner. What's going on? There you go. I think you grew up around the corner from me. Um, I'm interested in a company. Um, it's actually been holding up very well in this brutal market we've been going through. It's pretty close to its 52-week high. Um, the company is Iridium, I-R-D-M. Absolutely. Five, Satellite company that you and I know. And yes, from Cheltenham Avenue to just to, I don't know, Cromwell Road, you and I both know it's the right place. Okay, let's go to Donald in California. Donald. How are you doing, sir, Mr. Kramer? Uh, I am doing well, Donald. How about you? Great. Well, plug plug power, power. what's happening is is that we are now in that moment where even if a company's got a really good idea, and Andy Marsh does with hydrogen power, it's losing money. And when a stock is losing money, it goes down in this business. That's plain and simple. That's all that's happening, and that's what is going to continue to happen as long as the Fed is tightening. Dan in Michigan. Dan. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Uh, I had a question about uh, something I've been holding all year. It's called Cameco Corp. Uh, they did a really lousy deal with Westing, by Westinghouse. They offered way too much to their own company. That's why I went down. I would never have done that deal if I were them. I would have just let it ride. Let's go to Joe in California. Joe. 
Yes, sir. Western Union. I was thinking with all the immigrants. I used to believe in. in him. I used to believe. I used to believe. But they have no growth whatsoever. We can't own stocks that have no growth in this period of Fed tightening. Let's go to Bob in Florida. Bob. Go ahead, Bob. Hello. Big booyah, Bob, Jim. Long time. Booyah, Bob. My question is Fantastic. about Roblox. With the new well, Roblox interest. is an absolutely great company. I mean, it's a fabulous company, but it doesn't make money, and that's a problem. If it made money, I'd be telling you to buy, buy, buy. Instead, I have to say you can't do it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up. With recession looming, hear the case for why Americans should have hope. Kramer gets global when we return. I keep hearing that we're about to have a Lehman Brothers moment, that something's about to send us into a tailspin that will cause the entire financial system to shudder. A catastrophic event that will reverberate through the whole stock market, causing a sell-off of unimaginable proportions. When I hear this stuff, my initial reaction is somebody forgot to take the medication. Don't get me wrong, this is a bad moment for the market. But it's particularly bad. We have high inflation, so the Federal Reserve is going to bring the pain until it goes away. The house of pain. That's what the Fed does. End of story. Look, I'm not in denial that something could be terrible. Something could lurk. I... Uh, maybe uh, Putin could sense he's losing the war, so he's launching nukes, possibly kicking off World War III. Bad for the market, although in a thermonuclear war scenario, I don't know how much you'll care about your portfolio. China could invade Taiwan, which might lead to something similar. Horrible outcome, no matter what. There are a lot of terrible things that could happen, definitely. And I want to have a look back at YouTube and say, hey, Kramer didn't tell me they could launch nukes and we all could die. No, I'm not doing that. But it might have an impact similar to Lehman going under. This is not 2008, though. See, there are some guardrails that have been put in place that didn't exist back then. Things that might have been similar to the Lehman moment in the past are now turning actually into buying opportunities in the present because the worst-case scenario has already been taken off the table. Not everything is perfect, but we have a much stronger banking system, certainly stronger than every other country in the world, including amazingly Switzerland, once the home of the most stable banks on Earth. So take the situation in Britain that you're hearing a lot about. A bunch of pension funds got stung when interest rates suddenly moved higher, and they have positions on, the, on their sheets that can wreck them if the Bank of England doesn't bail them out with open market bond purchases. At one time, this British pension problem definitely would have caused a, a catastrophe. Definitely, as our banks would have somehow been involved and been over-levered and really gotten hurt. But these days, we have a ton of rules in place that keep our banks from being caught doing something stupid, and our banks are much better capitalized. They can handle the contagion. If anything, we have so many alternative asset managers that will eagerly scoop up any bonds that are being puked up by the U.K.'s money-losing pension funds that they'll hedge the sterling and then make a killing. The Bank of England's bond-buying program ends on Friday. Our asset managers are ready to crush it. Or how about the way our country's coping with the huge production cuts from OPEC+. Two million barrels of oil per day gone as Saudi Arabia and Russia teamed up last week to fleece the rest of the world. At least that was the plan. The price of oil hasn't budged. Why? Because America's now the largest producer of oil and natural gas on Earth. Unlike Europe, which will have to ration natural gas this winter, we're able to export the stuff all over the world, only limited by our own transportation infrastructure. We have a hundred-year supply in this country of natural gas. In fact, we could produce a heck of a lot more if the Biden administration weren't so hostile to adding pipeline capacity, although, of course, they will deny that kicking and screaming. 
Meanwhile, there's an old-fashioned land war raging in Europe, creating fear across the continent. We thought this kind of conflict was a thing of the past. But for the most part, the war in Ukraine is not affecting our day-to-day lives. Sure, it's sending up the price of food a bit because 30 to 40 percent of the world's fertilizer comes from the region. And there are whole countries with an endangered food supply where famine now reigns supreme. But not here. So many of our companies, especially our tech companies, are about to report earnings that are going to be skewed downward because of the strong dollar. Another real problem. At least, though, we have technology that other countries want. And while the strong dollar plays havoc with earnings, the dollar is strong precisely because our economy is in much better shape than the rest of the world. I know it's incredibly easy to complain and conjure cataclysmic events, and if they have them, boy, will you look like a genius. But there needs to be some recognition that we've got it so much easier than any other nation in the world, including China, which keeps locking down huge chunks of the country because they refuse to use the right vaccines. At the end of the day, there are plenty of reasons to legitimately dislike this market. You do not need to make up potential disaster scenarios to justify feeling bad about stocks. Those disasters almost certainly won't come true. And the United States is coping surprisingly well with everything that's wrong in the rest of the world. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. 